Uh, but we are doing something uh, different and uh, something that we're just in, into our second week with our Sunday night service, uh, Sunday night Bible study. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 again tonight. We are beginning a brand new conversation, or we began a brand new conversation around the book of Acts last Sunday night, um, and we um, are, are entering into Acts, understanding a little bit about it already. Most of us know a little bit or a lot about the book of Acts. We've been in church long enough. We've read the Bible enough to know that Acts tells the history of the church. It tells the inspiration behind the church, and it tells about the, the movement that the church was in the first century, that it was to continue to be into the centuries to come, that it still is here in the 21st century. Um, and we kind of came to the conclusion last week, and we'll kickstart this week with the same, uh, with, with kind of a recap of our um, introduction. We came to the conclusion that Acts clearly communicates both the vision for the church and the mission of the church. That Acts tells us the narrative of the early church, but in that narrative, we learn and we see what God's vision and what God's intentions were for the church, what his intentions and vision still is for the church. And also, as we read Acts and study Acts and, and come to know these stories so well, we also are going to see what the mission of the church was, how they followed it, where they made some mistakes, where they did things very well. But we'll also learn that that mission is still our mission. Uh, in our introduction, we made sure to bridge the gap between part one of Luke's story and part two, of course, part one being the gospel of Luke, um, Luke being the author of Acts as well. Uh, part one is about the life and ministry of Jesus, and then part two is about the beginning and the expansion of his church. Now, we came away with a few other things from last time as we read this introduction and we are told about Jesus's suffering. We're told about um, his word that set the set the pace and set the tempo for uh, the, the disciples and how it would give them the groundwork for what was to come. Uh, we came to these two conclusions last week, that the church was born out of suffering and would thrive in it. That as we kind of teased out what was to come in Acts, there is going to be a lot of suffering in this book. And the disciples um, that we already know, ones that we're going to meet, they are going to suffer a lot, but they're going to learn to endure that suffering. And they're going to learn, and they're going to come to be galvanized around this truth that not only was the church born out of suffering, of course, Christ's suffering, but it would thrive in suffering and through suffering. And that's true to this day. We also learned that the church was built on the word of God that Jesus, of course, expanded and gave even more insight about the old and established more, uh, you know, more parts and, of course, books that would be written based on what he said and did. That the church was built on the word of God, the foundation of God's word, and it would only thrive by that same word and in that same word. So we know these are two non-negotiables, that we're going to face trials. We're going to face uh, some troubles in this life. Jesus said as much. He experienced as much. The disciples will show as much, that we will face trials ourselves, but we will not be undone by them. We'll actually be, um, be fulfilled and, and grow and more complete because of them. We'll thrive in those trials, and we know that the Word of God is our foundation, and we cannot budge to the left 
or to the right of it. So we talked about the importance of those two keys, the enduring, uh, how we should endure suffering, how we must embrace Scripture. We looked at verses five, 4 and 5 um, also as being these trend tone setters um, of things to come, uh, where the, the, the Word says that Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem on the promise of God. We also see in verse 5 that He told them they would be baptized by the Spirit of God, by the presence of God. So these two verses really set the tone for not just the, the early events of Acts, but really the whole book of Acts about waiting on God, trusting in God, relying on God when it would be easy to go uh, in another direction. Waiting on God would be something that would be essential for the church. We still must wait on the Lord and trust in His promises when it would be easier to go another direction. We wait on God's promises and we walk in God's presence. Being baptized in the Spirit means to be filled, means to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God. So we wait on His promises and we walk in His presence. Those two things are crucial principles we see upheld in Acts and that we ought to continue to prioritize. Every day we should pray, God, give me the patience to wait on you and give me the confidence to walk in your presence. The reason for which these two will be continual themes in Acts and should continue to be our own themes is because God is trying to do and willing to do a daily work in his children. He wants to work on our characters. We're going to see the disciples grow as people. We're going to see people that we would already imagine to have made it pretty far in their spiritual lives. We're going to see those men and women take another step because there's always character growth. And we know that ourselves, right, we know that we have some room to grow and we're going to learn how God God wants to do a work on our characters, and we're also going to see that God always has something to call us to, some new work to begin through us, and some work to continue with us at the wheel that maybe someone else started. Uh, the same goes for his intentions toward us, we're going to learn. And, and, and tonight, the direction that we're going in from those principles, in our waiting on and our walking with God, we are being prepared for the work of his church, which is to be witnesses of his and for his gospel. So we see these four, verse 4 and 5 really set us up for what is so crucial, verses 6 through 11, which we're going to camp out in tonight, that waiting on God's promises and walking with him and in his presence prepare us for this essential work non-negotiable work of the church, which is to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We're going to encounter the first bit of tension, though, as we get the ball rolling. As the disciples, um, they aren't quite aware of the purpose of the church. Now, to their credit, they didn't have the Bible that we have. They, had all, they didn't have the book of Acts. They were about to live it. They had Jesus' words in their memories, but they had proven to not really have it to, to down pat. They couldn't quote it like we uh, think we can, right? So the disciples, um, they're not going to be quite aware of the purpose of the church. And right off the bat here, they're going to assume that the next stage of this movement is not at all what it actually turns out to be, and, and that's what we're going to see. So if you read the Gospels, you already know that the disciples, um, you know, weren't always on the same page with Jesus. They butted heads. They thought that Jesus was going to be a, a different kind of Messiah. He tried to explain to them that uh, his mission was different, 
than their expectations over and over again. We see them kind of, you know, you know, have these moments where they thought he was going to do this and he actually came to do this. They never thought he was going to die. Uh, they didn't think he was going to come back to life. But, of course, he did. And they definitely did not think that the church was going to be um, as it was about to be uh, told uh, to be. And as we've studied before, uh, they expected a Messiah to be a king, a king like David and Solomon, but better. Um, they were hoping for God to make Israel as great as it once was, or maybe even better. Uh, they were rallying for Israel to be back on the map in a bigger and better way, to remove its enemies from its path, and the oppression of Rome and all the other opposition. Jesus' idea of the church really did not fit into that equation, though, uh, or at least wasn't necessarily going to uh, go that direction in, in, in the way they thought it would. If the church was a merely a transition team to make ready the new kingdom of Israel, the disciples were on board with that proposition, but that's clearly not what it was. Yet, they were still holding on to the possibility that that's what was next. Uh, you, you see where, we're go where they went wrong. Most of the first century Jews uh, went wrong as well. Of course, they never even followed Jesus because he already did not fit the bill. But the, they, didn't, they didn't see Israel as a means to a greater end. The Jews thought that Israel was the end-all, be-all of God's plan and of God's purposes in the world. They had the verses to quote, and they had the Bible to back them up. Uh, they did not see that there was something greater. They did not see there was something beyond Israel to come uh, with regards to God's relationship to the whole world. Uh, they were not evangelical in the very sense of the word. word. There was no reason for them to be. They were Zionist. Uh, they were only concerned about Israel and its pride and its prosperity. And they had waited long and long amounts of time for this potential of a Messiah coming to restore Israel to its former glory and even greater glory. Uh, now, let me be clear. While God does have an ongoing and outstanding promise to keep to Israel— to this day, uh, because he always keeps his covenants, uh, God's intentions have always been beyond Israel. That Jesus didn't all of a sudden show up and say, the Old Testament y'all are reading is wrong. He said, y'all just have missed a lot of what God said in it. Uh, God has a plan for Israel, yes, but his plan has always been beyond just Israel. Back in Isaiah, when God was talking about the post-exilic restoration of Israel, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. It, or God says to Isaiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So God's intention from the beginning, we talked about this this morning with Abraham, all the nations had left, had forsaken him. So God started his own nation through, through, that, through that one nation. He might bring to light the knowledge of God, to bring all nations back to where they were meant to be from the beginning. So God was using Israel. He was positioning Israel to be a light to the whole world, to bring a Savior through them for the whole world. And this reflects God's heart from the beginning. Again, not a slight to the Jews. Jesus was, and he is a Jew. He came to them first, and his work is not yet done with the nation of Israel. But even in that work, his heart is all about the whole world because God is for the world. So in Acts 1-6, when they ask this very specific and narrow question, 
we understand why Jesus responds the way he does. In the, the Bible says in verse 6, Therefore, when they came together, they asked Jesus, ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, we were waiting on you to do this your entire earthly ministry, and then you went to the cross, and you died, and you went to the grave, but now you're back. We don't really understand all that little detour, why that was necessary, because you could have already did all this. We were expecting it. We had a parade for you. We were planning for it already. We were already fighting over who was going to be your right and your left-hand guy. So, Jesus, now that all that cross and resurrection's out of the way, is now the time? <laughs> you see, they still saw through their own narrow little worldview they weren't thinking big picture and to their credit they had no reason to think big picture aside from scriptures like this but they didn't uh, necessarily know those as well as they did others Jesus responds in two ways and we're going to talk about his, his both of his responses here but verse 7 and 8 he said to them it is not for you to know times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority but Right now what matters is you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So they're thinking very narrow, very specific, very local, very focused. They're thinking about their little nation, which of course they would. And then all of a sudden Jesus says this jarring statement yeah, I want to bring salvation to this nation, but I'm also going to use y'all to bring salvation to all nations. Now, first up, he does confirm in verse 7 that there is a destination, there is an eternal goal in mind, and it does feature Israel, and it does have to do with the kingdom of God as it was prophesied before. Yes, the end game is the kingdom of God, a restored, idyllic world as prophesied in the Old Testament. And we can do all sorts of charts and all sorts of prophecy studies, and we can spend all the time you want talking about all the signs and all the, 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 the things that point to that end game. However, he clearly says this time isn't for anyone to know, let alone dwell in or get distracted by. Now, we teased this out last time, but notice how Jesus ends this verse. Fixed by his own, the Father's, authority. Jesus is talking about how, yes, we are headed towards God's kingdom. And yes, God is in the middle of all the affairs of these earthly nations. And as the Old Testament makes clear, all the pieces are working together to eventually reach this point. But how all that works together is beyond our ability to comprehend and outside of our reach to even influence. God has a plan. Jesus' point... In point in the first century and to the first century church I think is as important to us even because they don't see the possibility for God's movement to ever get off the ground based on the circumstances they were facing in Israel they were outlaws Jesus was just crucified by a coalition between the Romans and the Jews so if the church was ever going to move, if God's word or God's movement was ever going to spread, it was going to be hit, you know, it was going to hit a brick wall before they even got down the street. So their idea is that Jesus, we will never get this off the ground as long as the authorities of man are not of you. As long as these ungodly 
leaders are in control of our nation and all the nations. You see where they're getting at? Jesus, it's not possible for God's movement to even make ends meet on this planet right now because nothing is under his authority. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Do you really think after I just was killed and came back to life that my father is somehow at the mercy of Rome? At the mercy of Herod? Come on, guys. Now, I think we, all these years later, can benefit from what Jesus is trying to say, don't you? That the mission God is sending us on is going to require that we not get distracted or discouraged by politics. Now, you can check out if you think this isn't for you, but Jesus is talking to those in the church who take serious the role of building and expanding his movement. Maybe this is just to preachers, but I think... I have a hunch. It's to more. We believe that God is building a greater kingdom. It's not exclusively a Jewish kingdom. It's not exclusively an American kingdom, nor this or that, but one for every tribe and every tongue of every nation. And we believe that God has the authority to prepare and establish his kingdom. He's doing it right now. We have no idea what all is involved in this eternally long, multinational, multi-generational project. God just tells us in verse 7, you don't worry about all the things that are going on behind the scenes. I know it might look difficult, but I think I can handle this. But as for you, verse 8 is what we should focus on. God is our sole authority in realizing the kingdom that he's building. The church has been given power to go and reach people to live in that kingdom and to dwell in his kingdom. You see the difference? God is the designer. God is the director. We are the disciples, as in we follow him, and we trust in what he's doing. And we're called to make more disciples who follow that same lead, who follow that same notion. So we aren't beholden to times or seasons or circumstances. We are empowered to be witnesses in every setting we find ourselves in even the difficult ones. That's where our main concern should be. I think think this is so relieving. I don't know about y'all, but to me it's so relieving. Our power is contingent on no other authority but God. Isn't that incredible? Now, there are times that we feel weaker than others, right? There are seasons, there are circumstances, there are administrations wherein we feel empowered or we feel less powerful. There are situations in this world we feel like we have either more going for us or more going against us. But here is the promise Jesus gives these first century Jews who were outlaws and all but one of them would be dead in less than 30 years. He says, your power is not contingent on any authority other than God's. No other establishment determines your authority or your power but the kingdom of God you know if we just strapped the helmet on every day the helmet of salvation as it is if we just kept this perspective would we ever get discouraged I mean I know we're human we're gonna get discouraged but come on would we ever get discouraged if we remembered this 
I mean, we, we would never, we don't ever actually have to be surprised by how things go or don't go in the kingdoms of man. Our main focus is go, go, go as the church of Jesus Christ. If that sounds familiar with some other scriptures, it's because it is familiar and it is uh, similar to the Great Commission. Same version, same idea as this, but given in Matthew's gospel. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So still, verse 7 and that verse, kind of similar, right? He says, I know y'all are worried about all the ifs and buts and what's going to happen, but listen, all authority is mine. I just walked out of a grave. I mean, come on. All authority is mine. You go, you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, some may say that their everyday focus isn't about making disciples. It's just a Sunday thing, just a preacher thing. But is that really so? with you always to the end of the age. That includes our age, doesn't it? We are still his church, and this same mission is ours, isn't it? Now, if we feel overwhelmed about this, imagine how they felt. (laughs) The pathway was much different than they expected, and they thought it was going to be difficult, but Jesus really just turned it all inside out in these few verses. They weren't going to remove Rome for one nation's gain. They were going to reach Rome for every nation's gain. Do you see what he just did? They thought God's going to remove Rome and put Israel in charge of every other nation. They're all going to be subdued, one nation over the others. That's what we've been waiting for. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're going to reach the ends of the earth. I'm not going to get rid of the Roman Empire. I know they're evil, and the Lord knows it's going to get worse. We're not getting rid of it, though. We're going to reach it for every nation's gain. But, but Jesus, is, couldn't, it be, couldn't we make this easier? God has a plan. Just trust me. Beyond that, this was not about global triumph for Israel. It was not about an exclusive hope only of Israel. This was about global evangelism and an inclusive, as in a hope for everybody. They would believe. They didn't expect that, though. Yet Jesus stands before them and says, this isn't what you thought it was going to be. That's okay if you're surprised, but better yet, let's get inspired for this cause. Again, I can't state how big of a deal verse 8 is. It's a game changer because it definitely charted a different unexpected course for the disciples. Even after, reaching, they, even after realizing they had a story to tell, Knowing what Jesus did for them, they still couldn't easily have, they could have easily been psyched out of the mission because of the improbability of success in light of the opposition from both Jewish governments and Roman governments that just killed Jesus, so they're going to try to kill us. Of course they will. So you imagine they could have easily psyched themselves out. It was improbable because of the opposition. None of them had jobs. They all, had, they all were outlaws. No one would hire them. They all followed Jesus. He provided for them, and now he was gone. What was going to happen? None of them had any money. None of them had any any particular skills or things to offer. So on top of having an uphill battle to face against governments and cultures that would resist and reject them, you can imagine how unenthused or helpless they felt when given this task. 
They just wanted to fast forward to the end because they didn't see this ever being a possibility. But come on, when we think about the book of Acts, we don't think about the disciples having trouble. We don't think about them having an uphill battle to climb. We don't think about them being discouraged and thinking this will never happen. Because 2,000 years later, there are churches on every continent. There are Christians who are from every tribe and every tongue. And we look back to Acts as the beginning of this unstoppable movement. We don't look back at Acts and think, wow, I can't believe they ever got it started. We look back and just think, you know, it's incredible how resilient they were it's incredible what they were able to accomplish but it was never in doubt or in question you know why we had that confidence because you and I've read the whole story you and I have the entire history of the world to look back on and we know what the church did we know how it toppled the empire from inside out we know how the church has persisted against tribulations against persecution against all the things that have tried to stamp it out and get rid of it yet it marches on we know what has gotten us here don't we because they had the power of God working through them and within them he says it in verse 8 he gave them power and we know that's what got them through. That's the secret that verse 4 promises and verse 8 promises. Power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of God's promises. And that's just what they were in the book of Acts and what Christians have been throughout history. That's why you're a Christian, because somebody before you was a witness of the promise of God, because the power of God rested on them, power that enabled them to face problems, poverty, pain, political upheaval, oppression, obstacles, odds stacked against them on every side. The power of the Holy Spirit was in them, which had proven greater than sin and death. So literally nothing could overwhelm or outdo it. You see what Jesus is trying to say? Listen, the power that I have been working through the Spirit of God who is in me, who rose me from the grave, He is going to be in all of you. And we've already seen He's greater than sin. He's greater than death. So if He can outdo and overwhelm sin and death, what can possibly outdo or overwhelm you? Rome? Come on! Some ungodly regime? Some problem that comes from this corner or that corner? Are we really going to give in to these little tiny things? When God's Spirit has empowered us? I mean, Romans 8, 11 says this amazing statement. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. I mean, if. We know that's true. Every Christian who, who's, who, becomes, who is born again, all of us, we receive the Spirit of God at salvation. He who raised Christ from the dead also gives us life. You have that power too. As the promise was to the disciples, so is it to us. As John would go on to write, little children, you are from God and have overcome the enemies. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But come on, we act like the world has got us in a corner, don't we? The disciples sure thought they were in a corner. But the purpose of the power they were given would enable them to be witnesses under the promises they had received. Power that can make our lives living testimonies of salvation and sanctification, as in the growth of our faith, the growth, growth as a Christian. Our redemption 
and our restoration as we walk in that redemption. God can make you and I witnesses, living testimonies of God's promise so that we might live out the promises of the gospel and live up to the potential of the gospel, we are going to read about how the disciples live up and live out this calling over them, uh, this calling that was over them throughout the book of Acts. But they weren't, you know, saying ready, set, go when Jesus got done in verse 8. Verse number 9 through 11 suggests that they still weren't quite on board. Maybe we aren't, but we're in good company. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in the cloud. A cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward the heavens as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. We've seen these two, these two men before. The angels at the tomb are now there uh, at his sides as he's ascending. And this is so powerful. And I, think, I don't think it would be wrong to say you could replace, you could take men of Galilee and say men and women of Lincolnton in this same verse. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So verse six, they say, Jesus, hey, we're going to wrap this up. I mean, you look at this world. It's awful. It's messed up. It's broken. It's sinful. It's unruly. Come on, let's go ahead and fast forward to the end. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You leave that to me. Meanwhile, y'all go, make disciples of all nations. Start here, go there, to the ends of the earth. You've got power. Nothing's going to stop you. And then they think, I don't know about that. And they just watch. Now, again, they'd never seen this movie before. They'd never read it like we've read it. So I don't know what they were thinking. I imagine they were in awe. But I also think they were just thinking, what in the world did he just tell us? I mean, this isn't, we don't have a script for this. We don't know what really is supposed to happen next why do you stand there gazing? He is coming back, and you have a mission to accomplish. So as the story goes, they eventually don't stand still. They go. Starting in chapter 2, they go, they go, they go. Because the Spirit of God that God promised them comes to them and changes them and sets them on fire and gives them power. But history shows that Jesus did not come back for them. And all these years later, he's yet to come back. So verse 11 addresses every generation that stands gazing, I think. Because his return is still imminent, isn't it? So these words still stand over his church and whichever generation that is present when they're read, which... Unless I'm dreaming. It's us, right? These words are addressing us. We may be tempted to ask, verse 6, we're saved, the world's a mess, take us out of here, Jesus, or make them like we want them to be, and let's just get it over with. But verses 7 through 11 speak so clearly to us as they did the disciples, don't they? God has prepared the world around us. He is in control. Don't worry about the hard part. Leave it to him. Our mission remains the same. You will receive power. Go and be witnesses for me. So we look at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We don't live in Jerusalem. So I think we look at this through our lens. They started small, then they went broader. But I think we can look at this through our little Lincoln County perspective. 
We start with our community. We go to our county. But then there's those two last ones. Now, Samaria was a little farther out. Of course, the ends of the earth were way farther out, but there's something more here than just being distance. Samaria was the last place they wanted to go for anything. The Gospels give us enough information. They didn't want to go to Samaria. They got upset when Jesus went to Samaria. So what is the point here? Samaria is that unappealing place, those unappealing people for whatever reason. And you've got your reasons, I'm sure. We've got, I've got my reasons. But if we're going to go, we don't just go to our community. We don't just go to our county. But we go even to those places that are unappealing to us. And even those places that we would never expect to go. They never thought they would get to the ends of the earth. I mean, it's the ends of the earth. Who's going to get there? Yet they did make it, didn't they? A few of them literally made it to Rome. So we need to be willing for God to send us to those unappealing places, those unexpected, unlikely places. We can't. We can't just stand gazing the authority God has over us and the power he has given us is too great. Come on, as Christians, think about all that we know, the blessings, the peace, the hope. We can't keep that to ourselves, can we? And we sit around and talk about how bad the world is because they don't know what we know. And of course they've rejected it a time or two, but haven't we? And we even know it and reject it. So maybe is it this is bad, maybe worse? Like those lepers reasoned when they found themselves enjoying the spoils of war after they had been cast out of that ancient city in the Old Testament, they thought to themselves after reveling in all the treasure they found, we're going to keep this to ourselves and we're going to not even feel bad about it. But as morning began to dawn, the scripture says, even those lepers came to themselves and said, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning, punishment will overtake us. Come on, let's go and tell the king's household that we found relief from this famine that's too great for us to keep the spoils of victory to ourselves. Come on, we can't keep this to ourselves, can we? If we aren't compelled or convicted by this, I dare say we don't, just, we don't know how blessed we are to know Jesus and have hope. But come on, the things we take for granted that settle us in the bad, that ground us in the good, that have taught us to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing, that forgive us and restore us when we do the wrong thing. We don't deserve to know it, and it's not ours to keep. We must be witnesses to the whole world. We start in our own communities. Consider how lost we would be if we didn't know Jesus and didn't have his power at work within us. So therefore, we can't be careless. Even worse, we can't be arrogant about this gift. We must be witnesses not just with sermons, but with service. Not just through preaching, but with pursuing relationships with others as God has pursued one with us. I'll leave you with a quote that may just be the motto of a friendly neighborhood superhero. With great power comes great responsibility. Those aren't my words. With the great power we have been given, we have a great responsibility, don't we? If you know this great power, and I think you do, if you have this great power, and I think you do, 
You have this great responsibility and more than that, this great privilege of being sent to the whole world with the hope of all ages, for all ages, for all who might believe. So as Jesus said in a parable once, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom the master will set over his whole household? Blessed is that one that when his master returns, he finds so doing. Doing what? Being a witness here, there, and everywhere for the great power and the great salvation we've come to know. May God impress on us the urgency and the responsibility that the gift of salvation has given sinners like us. We have a mission to finish, don't we? Let me pray for you. Father, it is a humbling thing to preach this text, one of the most important scriptures in all the Bible. Because if somebody didn't take it serious before me, I wouldn't be here. And if somebody didn't take it serious before everybody else in this house or listening tonight, they wouldn't be here. Whether it's their parents or their preacher or somebody. It's taking this mission serious that brings people to know Jesus. This great responsibility should not be a light thing on our shoulders. It should be the heaviest of burdens. God, we live in a world that we often criticize and often wonder how long it will last. The disciples did it 2,000 years ago. We aren't in bad company, but we are in familiar company. And the same word you gave them, you give us. You, you leave that to me. You, therefore, go and reach all the world with this gift that you don't deserve, that no one deserves but you've been given. Father, I pray you, you would fill us, you would renew us with this same power tonight, and you would set our hearts on fire and focused forward for this kingdom agenda. Lord, if we're going to be the church, we can't ignore this, because if this is ignored, there is no church. Father, I pray you would use these men and women tonight boys and girls, to go into their worlds with your power from on high, with a message in their hearts. We thank you for the privilege to know it. And we thank you for the responsibility to bear it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.